The conversation you're about to hear, the tenses of cultural differences, was held between Monica De La Torre, Yumna Schlala, Sarah Riggs, and Alicia Mascarenhas in April 2021. Monica and Yumna interrogate the past to investigate complex present times and simultaneous states of reality. They contemplate the future as a place of potential rather than collapse. Together with Sarah and Alicia, they question the notion of heritage and the limits of empathy. They wonder how equivalences and differences rather than same-same structures in translation, art, film and among people can better address the pressures of the present. In the interstices between poems and readers, they try to figure out how we can all ignite the relational by becoming vessels and collaborate in the museum of future memories. In the conversation, you'll hear Monica and Yumna read from their own works. Monica will read an excerpt from Repetition 19 published by Nightboat in 2020, and Yumna will tell us more about The Paper Camera, the book she published in 2019 with Litmus Press. So welcome, Yumna and Monica. Thanks for being here with Tomas and me and Alicia today. And I want to start by uh, quoting the end of an interview that you did for Bomb Magazine, Uh, Monica interviewing Yumna earlier this year, January 2021. So Monica says, most of my work consists of creating objects that ignite the relational. Even the paper camera is made up of individual poems, but they are not discrete forms. The fragments are continuous. Within the space between the poems, between language and image, the readers become collaborators in the text. And then this idea of igniting the relational became the title of this interview. So I thought it would be a nice place for us to start in terms of thinking about, um, you know, individual poems and books and various art forms and translation and individuals and societies and cultures and the, the way that there are vast cultural traumas getting played out through individuals, like we've seen with George Floyd, and a, a kind of illness of separating out from the root understanding of those systems, and the way that artists and poets like yourselves are, are working in those interstices. Um, and, I, and I wanted also, um, Monica, if you would be so good as to read uh, your poem, Equivalences, Um, because I think also it's really working in the interstices and superimposition of languages. Um, and I think that might help get us started in igniting the relational. Awesome. I'm all for ignition. So. <laughs> <laughs> This poem always sounds a little bit different uh, because it's very hard to read. Um, so every reading is a bit of an improvisation. Equivalencias, equivalences. 
101 a silent silencio flare una llamarada a sip un sorbo of coffee before antes de que supiera bitter supiera amargo a gap en un hoyo dentro hole de un agujero tuvo dos mundos roads ya to one path para una trayectoria and a pair ojos of napping eyes cerrados durmiendo la siesta how many cuántos espejos mirrors on are two dos night falls cae tarde la tarde and two y aparecen dos luces lights appear dos hijos dos uh, children uh, two children going on three que ya son tres three tres espas is peace and a pledge y garantía a pledge una cómplice un cómplice an enemy un enemigo there are three open books Tres libros abiertos, tres granos de sal, salt, sal. Cuatro veces, four times I said, dije un nombre en nada y nada, nothing. Four is the same, cuatro es lo mismo, same, mismo que dos, two. Y si cinco, five times you ask, te preguntas yourself, te preguntas. ¿Qué hago aquí? What am I doing here? Get your bed, set your bed on fire. Dejar arder, let it burn, and split, y vete, split. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the intensity of, of hearing, you know, multiple languages, which is, of course, what we do all the time If when you walk down a busy New York City street, you know, it's like, or, or various metropolises. Um, and I just, I, I wonder if you could each comment on this, this question of, of kind of relationality that um, you, you live inside in, in the, in the, in in the present and a lot of our focus in our Tomas podcast is on talking about past, present and future. So I would love for you to situate that. Yeah. Um, so the intent behind this piece that is superimposed, I have the, the translation on top of the original and it's interesting because when it was printed, it became much more superimposed. Therefore my difficulty in reading it when I, Uh, have this poem on, on my computer on my desktop I superimposed it but just so so that I could read it without having so much interference but the idea here is that and I think this is so relevant in terms of the relational is that one version is not supplanting the other so the translation does not supplant the original and in terms of I've been thinking in ter about supplanting or taking this taking putting oneself in someone else's shoes and occupying that position instead of someone else um in terms of empathy actually and the limits of empathy and what does it mean to practice empathy to such a degree that you can only imagine another person's misfortunes as if before as if it were happening to you and if this process is so um carried through are you in fact pretending like you can experience someone else's pain or grief or suffering and does that lead to is that problematic is that a complex i mean it's certainly a very complex operation but what are the problems of that and so just like i've been thinking a lot of empathy and the, the relation on this in these terms Of course, we don't. It's a word that doesn't get that much examination because it's, it's, it's got such a positive valence, and I and rightly so. But then that is, there is that question of if you put yourself in someone else's shoes to such a degree that you forget that you are not that person, what is happening to that other person? 
you know? Yeah, that's that's part part of what I've been thinking about. Um, I'm sure you were not expecting that answer. But in this poem, the the the, the main issue is that I'm I'm it's a see-through translation that never allows you to forget that it's in relation to the original and not pretending to supplant it. Well, there are all kinds of boundary and territory issues that are involved, like whenever we're moving between languages and genres. Um, is, there, is there something in particular that has brought up empathy um, recently in your thinking, something you've been reading or experienced? Sure. Um, well, of course, uh, what we've been going through, um, and what this nation has been going through um, in terms of racial reckoning, but also Saidiya Hartman's um, scenes of subversion um, and what is the, the, the name of the, the chapter, um, the Divergence one, which I was just reading. Um, I will tell you in a second what it is. We can move on uh, from this while I find it because I am now having a blank. As to so the book is the book is scenes of subversion, but it's a chapter on. John Rankin's letters to his brother. It begins with John Rankin, who was an, a minister and an abolitionist, whose brother was a slave owner, who's writing to his brother <clears throat> to, 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 to really ignite his awareness of how awful slavery is. And in writing to his brother, he exercises he, he, he goes on this thought experiment and says to his brother that when he sees the slaves uh, on the auction block, uh, block being extricated from their families, he imagines that it's him and his wife and his child. And then he goes a little too far with that experiment and really imagines himself as a victim of the suffering. And of course, his intention is correct because he's trying to convince his brother about the horrors of slavery, but Saidiya Hartman takes that as the opportunity to examine what the practice of empathy in that regard um, is doing, what its complexities, you know, and problems and limits. Yeah, and she, of course, says that much more eloquently than I have, but I'm, I'm looking for the specific chapter of the book, and I have it here. I will mention it in a second when I find it. Um, I feel like Sidia Hartman is such a great person to bring into this because she, her practice is one of like active, empathetic um, uh, relation building, but not in the way that we would normally kind of think about it um, as a contemporary practice, but as a practice um, through the archive. So I think she um, she sort of exemplifies the theory being put into practice through her work. Um, and and I think what's interesting about it and about what you're saying is that uh, the relational is not a kind of mirror. <laughs> so it's not, the idea is not to mirror or to um, reflect each other's 
realities in a in um uh it's it's in the way that you talk about it in your book in an equivalent way it's not about um and i like the idea of equivalence versus um binary though binary kind of gets at the lack of multiplicity what the idea of the equal does is that it's not about that kind of reflection where it's like same same like i i don't need to relate to you because you are same as me in fact it's much more interesting to relate to each other if there are differentials or if there are um complications to that type of um connecting or mirroring and this is why um, in terms of form, I think of it as kind of break, like the idea is not for the poems to relate necessarily to other poems, but what if they, uh, relate not just in content, but also in form to image. And what if the image relates to performance and the performance relates to, um, moving image or film. And I think, uh, what I mean by relay and what you're, what I hear you talking about is like, um, it's it's what how do they not only inform a new connection or a new type of connection, um, but also a new type of um, rereading or reseeing um, something because um, it's understood as part of a larger kind of constellation or um, or way of making that is not on the thread of time. It's not linear time, and it's not. Um, it's not occupying the same physical space either. Um, it could be adjacent space. And so, um, so I, 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 and I feel like Sadia Hartman's practice is really driven by that. So it's, um, yeah, I love that you brought her up. <laughs> Yumna, could you talk a little bit about the title of the paper camera, how you came up with it? And cause you were talking about mirrors and not mirrors and I'm just, I'm interested mm. in sort of the evolution of the title. You're, um, it's one of those funny moments where the title appeared like long before the book, <laughs> um, uh, or long before the collection of all these, uh, pieces. Um, and then it was at a time when I was really thinking about the, the camera as an object and, and how, how we use it to negotiate space, how we use it, um, to separate our body from the, the subject, um, or from, um, the landscape or whatever it is that we are trying to capture in that um, act of taking an image um, or of, of documentation. And so um, I really became interested in the camera as an object and um, I was and, and I was really interested in its fragility. Um, because anyone who's dealt with a camera that is not an iPhone <laughs> knows that um, it is both weighty and, and, and it has presence and volume. Um, so it necessitates a kind of um, uh, a, a kind of presence, you know, and Ziga Vertovin is one of, you know, <laughs> is the perfect example of someone who really placed the camera uh, in the film and as that negotiating object. But um, but I think what I wanted to imagine it as is much more as a fragile object. Um, and, and paper to me is, um, it's flammable. <laughs> it is not, um, it's, and so I had this image of like a very impermanent, um, paper like camera that, um, that could be flammable, could, could really remove, um, 
remove the distance between the image maker and the subject or the object or the or the landscape. Mm. Well, I, and then that makes me think of Repetition 19, your new Nightboat book. Um, uh, Yumna's book is out with Litmus Press. And uh, wondering about the title um, and rep- like this, this question of repetition that keeps coming up um, in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, before I answer that, this chapter in the, in the Sadia Harman book, Scenes of Subversion, is Innocent Amusements just putting it out there so people can read it and it, it, it goes into uh, black performance really interesting uh repetition 19 hmm. i wanted my book to be called something with repetition in a number um and there are 25 rep- there are 25 different translations of the poem equivalencias and there's 25 for different reasons but the main one is that there are five stanzas in the poem so five times five is 25 um, I, that's where I drew the line in terms of the number of repetitions or, or reiterations of the translations. The number 19, it's very interesting. It, I think subconsciously I was channeling Elliot Weinberger's translate, a book, 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei, but that didn't come to me until the book was about to go to press. Um, and I, I I noticed it, it dawned on me, and I was like, oh, it makes perfect sense that I would think that that was the right number to um, use with the word repetition. I then discovered Eva Hesse's piece, Repetition 19, which, when I was looking for the number to go with repetition, um, and I thought it was a magical correspondence between what she's attempting to do with that series of sculptures that are empty vessels. She was looking for the right material uh, for them because she wanted them to be translucent enough that they would let body in, but not transparent enough that their material presence wouldn't be asserted by the material, if that makes sense. So if they were too transparent, you wouldn't focus on each one as a vessel with specific properties. And if they were uh, too opaque, you wouldn't you wouldn't see the light shining through them, and that to me just seemed like such a beautiful way of thinking of translation. And so her 19 repetitions of this vessel, um, she did three times until she found the right material. So just this idea of multiplicity and these bodies that are hollow uh, and empty vessels that can be filled with light and emptied, and then all stand together as a group um, in which none of them competes for your attention, none of, one, none of them asserts itself over the others, they're all equivalent, just seemed like it was a magical connection. That, that, so it's a, both an homage to Eva Hesse and um, to 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. Alicia mm-hmm. Mascaranis here has a question about relationality between the two of you, among other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of just, uh, I'm taking in what you're saying and thinking, I, I mean, I'm thinking about how you're both actually working with, um, with time, both in terms of like repetition and you know, you, you write a bit about, or like what I understand to be kind of a troubling of origins too. And it's, it's just making me curious about how you both 
situate yourselves in time, um, especially in terms of like um, legacy um, and what you're bringing forth in your own work. Um, so like, you know, in, in your, in your writing, I've, I've been spending some time with some different pieces in paper camera and thinking about, there's a question you ask at one point where you say, when are we in the legacy of crusaders? And, um, and then so much of, of the space of your work is in these textures of, of utterances and these like, pro, like muscular kind of propulsions of language. And it's really in those like subtle spaces. Um, and so I guess I'm think I'm curious about what is inherited in, in those like moments of utterance in language and in choosing which language to speak and in accounting for what's being carried in, in those choices. And then, I mean, maybe you both would have something to say about that, but I also want to also another like side to it is, um, Like language is inherited, and then also, I've I've been rereading Monica your your work on, I think I forget what the title is six six eighty two the one on that begins each line with my economy. And economy also being, this like repetition and reproduction, and this like, continuity, and you say my economy is not canonical, and you say my economy admits foundational narratives. So I guess my question in these relationships with um, with value and with economy and with language is just how you are both positioning yourselves or or feeling yourselves in in relation to what you've inherited, what you've inherited in terms of language, um, class, values. Um, mm-hmm. So what 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 you're bringing forth in your own language and in your own um, articulations of what of what you're holding. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, however mm-hmm. you want to take that, but yeah. You want to go first, Yumna? Uh, either way, go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think, I, I mean, I like the way that you um, are reading it both about as, as both time and um, and also kind of value systems, um, because I think the word inherent inherit uh, assumes something inherent <laughs> about it, right? That like um, we understand what we inherit and we can sort of um, choose what at will what we want. <laughs> like there's um, there's the inheritance of like the physical form, but then there's also like. Um, inheritance of like um health and well-being and and like as if as if um then once we kind of have all those things named we get to decide um based on our value system what we want to keep and what we don't um and i think the beauty of it is that it doesn't quite work that way (laughs) um and that um it's own it's a constantly evolving and flux process to understand um what we have um both inherited and what is inherent to that heritage um and um and so i think for me and and i will sort of 
speak about it more on the like language or practice side. Um, I think it's about always returning to, and I to in in terms of um, always returning to the original question. <laughs> and if I can figure out that if if my point of departure is not um, a solid um, is not on solid ground, but is on, in the form of a question, then I can figure out how to engage it. Um, and so, um, it, and it goes into this practice of like moving through different forms based on the question. Um, so I can only really, so I'll talk about the paper camera. The paper camera came about um, almost by happenstance because I really wanted to do one thing with um, with the practice of writing poetry or, or taking the Super 8 film that became the still images in there. Um, but it became something else because of my larger question, which was which had to do in this specific case um, with um, my relationship to the city of Beirut. And I could only sort of um, get closer to my questions by writing through it or um, by distilling the the moving image into a still image. Um, and so so then what happens with language is um, I don't have a single language to rely on anymore, <laughs> um, but I can tap into the ways in which what I have, um, what I feel connected to um, allows me, the ways in which what I feel connected to, and so that could be like um, my own experience or an experience that happened even before I was here um, as a way to think about um, the future. So it's like, it's this way of constantly not allowing time to um, exist as, um, as a marked point <laughs> that's fixed. Um, um, and I think that's how I, I, I think about and I um, am aware of what, I'm, what I've inherited. Um, yeah. Yeah, thinking of it as, as something that's continuous too and, and not continuing from a specific point, but mm -hmm. something that's a lot more um, fluent, maybe, and also like not predetermined. Mm hmm. Um, and, and a point of excavation, like something that's always. Uh, to be discovered, that it, um, yeah, that it lives beyond the kind of uh, imagistic notion. I mean, in in a political way, like the the piece about the Crusaders was like, or, or there's like little references to these kind of broad strokes we make about like the region and about like, um, so they're they're sort of political response to our broad stroke notions of history. Um, but on a personal level, it's really about allowing to myself to always be in a state of flux, not um, chaos <laughs> necessarily, but at least motion. That is just so, I, lo I love everything you said and I took notes because I'm thinking, yeah, it's such, a, such an interesting point, the inherited versus the inherent and what we inherit. And earlier you said then then earlier you said that what we inherit is what we understand. 
but then the, the, then then you circled on it and maybe said the opposite but i was thinking do we do we understand what we inherit and i think for me in the in 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 some of what's happening with repetition 19 is that it's precisely an investigation of what i inherited in order to understand it because maybe for me what i inherited was what i least understood because i simply took it for granted so narrative, for instance, in my case, of English versus Spanish, uh, growing up bilingually in Mexico City, having an aversion to English, on the one hand, culturally, because that's what the culture, that's where the culture was at, and the you know growing up in the '70s in Latin America, it's like the U.S. stood for what it still stands for, empire, and uh, it was to be um, resisted. And then at the same time, consumer society having exactly the same opposite on people and turning English and all things English into the object of desire. So just this tension between the politics and the practice of everyday living that is completely surrounded by English language commodities and products and merch and stuff. And then the figure of my mother who's completely displaced in Mexico and out of sorts and a marriage that was very frail and uh, wasn't going to last, although it lasted a long time. And so just the, the complications of my Spanish versus my, my English and then this desire to kind of claim the legacy that she had left behind, in a, all this inadvertently um, is some of what's at play in this book. And in understanding my relationship to English, then my relationship to Spanish became more of an enigma. And now I don't, I, it's curious to me to think that even though I'm mixed, I'm the result of a mixed marriage, when I'm asked about my nationality, my race, my identity, I never acknowledge the mix. I always identify as Latina or Hispanic. Um, and I think maybe that's what's next in store for me to understand this thing that I haven't examined because I take it as my inheritance, which is my relationship to Spanish. What is that? I don't know. Yeah. So I, I feel like I'm as, answering your question, but also opening more questions for myself, which I really appreciate. And also goes back to something that Yumna said about moving through different forms through a return to the original question such a beautiful way to put it yeah I really I like I like thinking about the way you're talking about inheritance um in terms of choice and what's um and and in terms of what's known and it's exciting to me to think about inheriting what we don't know and that I mean how where I where my mind goes with that is like in terms of um like like a person's purpose is to is to work with and try to understand what we've been given or what we what has been imposed onto us that we don't yet that's either the way that we don't know because it's either so much a part of us that it's a it's a given or because it's been you know erased or hidden or obscured in some other ways um but sort of but that um that integrity of, of mainta maintaining those those questions and continuing to return to those questions um, is so uncomfortable and is so much 
more difficult than taking things to be just understood or, or known. So I really I appreciate your perspectives on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd also really love to just hear, you know, part of how we invited the two of you to speak together was because um, of this bomb interview that you'd done together and because of there, there being sort of existing affinities between your work. So I'm curious to, to, to know more about um, your relationship to each other, like even just how you met and how you're, um, how you're affected or influenced by one another's work as, as poets, as translators, as artists. So we haven't really spent that much time together. What I can, I'm very certain of is that whenever Yumna is in the room, she's one of those people who semi-consciously I tell myself I want her to be my friend I really like her there's this like magnetism (laughs) so in a way the bomb interview was an opportunity to make my so make myself aware of the fact that that had been going on for a long time and then an opportunity to actually get started in the process um yeah it's funny how that happens right with certain presences um it's 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 absolutely mutual i think we've been in in the same room maybe for the last 10 years or more (laughs) um over and over same room or same space whether um in real time or not like uh whether through our work or you know like um uh, or through friends and i have the same exact um, feeling, and I think for the last over ten years, I've been like, "Why aren't we friends? <laughs> Why don't we hang out all the time?" Um, and we hadn't mm-hmm. had the opportunity to really build on that up until this interview. So it was this kind of magical uh, moment where we were able to do that in a deeper way. I feel like I'm blushing actually because it's like, "Oh I my know, god, I said it!" <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> Also, the, the pandemic. I feel the I, same. I, I feel the same. <laughs> A million percent. The pandemic has, yeah, the, the pandemic made me realize that I'm actually a quite lazy person when it comes to socializing. Just because New York City makes it so easy not to do anything. You just show up, you go to readings, you go to an event, you go to a launch, a party, and then you encounter the people you like and you don't really have to be pro- more proactive than that, right? you just show up and let things happen and now it's like yeah who like I yeah I've just become much more aware of the fact that I need to really work on those relationships if I want to keep cultivating them you know I can't take for granted that the opportunities to encounter each other in physical space will happen unless I do something about it mm-hmm. I want to go back to um, the mention of Saidia Hartman because um, I think she has a way of interrogating the, past, the present through past journeys in archive. And I've noticed in, in a number of cases, including in this conversation, that Yumna refers to the future. And I'm, I'm really interested in kind of pushing further conversations around the future in a, in a climate where, you know, there's this sort of sense that we should feel urgency but but that's not how people are leading their daily lives um except for 
a, a small percentage of people, perhaps. But I, I'm, I've also heard Natalie Diaz in her um, Cooper IDS lecture um, interrogate the question of emergency and urgency and this very idea of urgency. Um, and I think I'm intrigued by the way you both are, you know, interrogating the past and investigating very complex presence. Um, and I, I want to just push a little bit further on that question of the future. Do you want to start? <laughs> and we can go back and forth. Uh, I'm thinking about it. I really like what you what you said, Sarah, in terms of like theoretically we entertain the notion of the urgency of the future, but in our daily lives, it's just so hard to actually do anything about. It. Like I, you, you said it, you said it in such a way that just points to that tension because I think just especially now daily life, it feels so fraught. Just carrying on with dailiness as we used to think of dailiness is uh, requires a lot of effort, at least for me. And so I don't, of course I understand the urgency of the present, uh, the, the future, but I'm so concerned, I'm so in the present that I, 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 I need to think about what, 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 what my position is regarding the future. Um, well, I think you're working yeah. on it all the time. So I'm not, I'm not um, suggesting that this is like a novel concept that you need to think about. I think your work addresses the future. Right. Um, and it's the complex way in which it does that through the very roots, the very, like the root system, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the kind of subterranean um, place where things are nourishing and happening and... And, and its connection to trauma and colonization. Yeah. Right, right, right. And also just thinking of what Yumna said in terms of not thinking of, the, of, of time as a, as a... You didn't say this exactly, but if time is not a collection of fixed points that then we designate as, oh, that was the past, and then the past of the past. and right If it's not that, and it's a continuum, and moving forward involves revisiting, unpacking, digging further, um, taking up the op- openings and opportunities that the past offers, that maybe when we were in the past present, we were too caught up by the present to see, that they could be mobilized in the future. Yeah, maybe I, I really, yeah, definitely. That's that's certainly there in my, in my writing for sure. And I feel, in fact, that almost everything I do forward has something to do with something I didn't do in the past. Like I'm never imagining to do something I've never done before, even though, of course, one should. Perhaps that's what we're told. Everything that I do moving forward has something to do with what I could have done with my past. And it's not, but it's not a sense of regret that mobilizes this. It's just a sense of like, oh, I couldn't see this opportunity or I didn't, I didn't take this route because I had to take this other one for whatever reason. Um, and yeah, certainly understand like how our relationship to the past keeps being informed by the present. The past keeps getting shaped according to the present's needs. And in that keeps 
shaping the future. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think, well, my preoccupation with futurity came about because maybe uh, in the kind of like art world universe, uh, maybe a few years ago, five, six, seven, eight years ago, um, there began to be like four million shows about the apocalypse and like <laughs> the end of the world. And it became like a really big preoccupation in the art world. Um, and I was really feeling, um, and disaster and, and apocalypse and disaster and apocalypse and, um, let's get ready, you know, like it's coming. Um, so what are artists going to do about it? And, um, I I couldn't articulate why that was very frustrating for me. Um, And so I began this project called the Museum of Future Memories because um, I I didn't think of like all of this disaster and apocalyptic talk as like the way I understood the future. Um, I I related to all of that much more as a contemporary condition (laughs) and like a present tense condition than a future condition. I really needed to understand futurity as a place of potential, not a place of collapse. And I'm using this term collapse very consciously because it's something I'm trying to work through because um, it's kind of the term that's been placed on top of Lebanon right now as like a nation state under collapse. And I really want to understand that um, in a deeper way. So kind of what you're saying, it's like this continual revisiting of the moment, <laughs> even when you're in the moment. Um, but but for me, futurity is not so much something like to hurry into, but I was trying to understand. It's not something like we urgently need to move towards, um, but it's something that to consider as, a, as almost like I imagined it as like a new spatial condition to, to coexist with. <laughs> like if I, I want to coexist with the spatial condition that is futurity and to know that it's there and not to ignore it, but also not to run towards it. Um, and so, um, so that takes different forms and different projects, but I think the central thing for me, and this is something I was talking about, um, in their interview, I think we ended up talking about it, but, um, it all came about from a project I did in, in Norway. And also that was, um, about, a, uh, a kind that really had me look at the potential, like there was, a, especially a few years ago, there was like so much talk about like anything that's a boundary or an edge condition, um, in a city, uh, where that's near water, like get ready because you're going to be consumed underwater soon. Right. So, um, I work a lot with architects and there was all these architecture projects like, um, okay, so now you have to like imagine, uh, sites where, um, where there's no longer a division between the water and the land. And what are you going to do? Are you going to have buildings float? Are you going to create um, uh, a wave to, to handle, you know, after uh, Sandy in 2012 in New York, are you going to be able to handle another kind of um, underwater immersion like this? Like, what, what are we doing 
in terms of futurity and, and getting ready for that loss of separation between land and water. Um, and so for me, my whole project then became about the horizon line because that's the point we look to to know where we are. And if there's no separation between sea and sky anymore, um, then how do you know where you are if you, if you can't identify that line? Um, so it's a very... Um, it's a very aesthetic and theoretical and generative project because it's really about perception and about how we understand where we are both in time and in place um, or space. So it's, it's all the things that you were talking about, Monica, which is like, um, maybe it's not, and, and what Sarah, you were talking about in terms of like how we, the, the, the urgency, um, like maybe it's 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 less about urgency and more like standing still <laughs> um and and looking yeah i mean and coming back to this idea of igniting the relational you know even even at the level of the elements you know water and land and um, yes you're right you're both right in it yes mm. i was thinking of of um how when you look at the past conceptions of the, of futurity and the future like nothing seems more dated than the than retro futures right like the 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 past conceptions of the future date more than the past itself in a way and so it just like just elaborating on this i i'm also thinking what happens when you when you supplant like cancel the present for the sake of the future that seems like an ox that's that seems like a very uh, counterproductive operation like i think if you if you if you solve and dig and respond in the present that seems like a sure way of ensuring that the future has a possibility Right then, then if you stop doing things now, just like for the sake of the future, and then seek like stop responding. Yeah, I think it's that that capacity to respond to the pressures of the present is what ensures the possibility of a better future. Yeah, absolutely. And what you are saying um, when I first started researching this and like thinking about it I thought about about migration and immigration and and the idea of being like a refugee and it's exactly what you said like unless and I and I tried to kind of think through this notion that like you cannot physically move whether forcibly displaced or displaced because of circumstance you cannot move forward unless you have the ability to see a future and understand your present condition. <laughs> and, and, and so like migration is a kind or immigration or displaced refugees. There, there is a kind of thing that's about like knowing futurity um, and believing in it. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no way that you could actually like get from point A to point B. Um, and it's not about hope, it's something else. And so um, it's very close to what you're talking about, which is like being so hyper aware of this like present tense condition that you're then able to move forward. Otherwise, like you, and that's both collective and individual. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing that I've been trying to like name too, which is 
um, a kind of drive. Um, and that's very different than also what you were talking about and just you made me think about, which is like, um, I've, this is some, another condition that has been very curious to me, which is like, you know, I love the retro future thing. It does nothing more dated. <laughs> it's true. And it's like so kitsch and beautiful and like that everything will be white and we'll be in spaceships and, <laughs> and glossy. The idea of like, if, if it's glossy or if it's made of like metal, like I remember dressing up like in a Halloween costume that was like all silver because that's the future, you know, like <laughs> these notions of like all of that stuff. Um, I, I love that imagery too, because it is this, it's almost like as if we used to think of um, futurity as like a non-space, like, you know, <laughs> um, it, it was no longer actually tied to, to what we know. Yeah, I'm, I mean, something that I'm hearing in what both of you are saying too um, is this kind of like false novelty of the future that feels really like disembodied as something that just like exists as like strictly new and like that shininess and that kind of like gloss really takes it out of anything that can currently exist. Yeah. Whereas being, being in the conditions of the present and attending to what needs to be dealt with now and what needs to be nourished now and, and cared for and like contended with seems to me like a, a, a much more like real way of like being able to actually feel and sense into what making a future is rather than something that's that's separate and elsewhere um you know i wonder if you would if there's um something you would like to move us toward closing with um if there's a poem that you'd like to share i don't know if you had something in mind already um sure actually it's um I'm going to read just half of it, <laughs> um, and it's uh, or like maybe a small quarter of it because um, it's a really long poem, and I don't usually write long poems. <laughs> um, but this is um, uh, a poem that actually comes from the Museum of Future Memory projects. Um, and so it's a new piece, and it um, uh, the the quick intro is that um, it's set in the Lofoten Islands um, in the north of Norway, which is like one of the northernmost points in the world and like spectacular. Um, and at a site where um, the main industry is cod fishing and um, the work I did was like installing these texts within the village um, and uh, and as part of a biennial, but it was really about um, the Lapotin biennial, but it's um, really being encountering these steps, these these pieces um, in real time and real space. Um, and, um, and this work is about the future color being the color blue. <laughs> Um, so that's the color of the future. So I, um, I can talk more about it, but I'll just read a little bit and then, yeah, not the whole thing, but some. Uh, so it's called, How Many Tongues Does It Take to Make a Color? Dear, dear, what color is our future language? In the future, we will only see it as blue. It might be yours or mine. Either way, it will be blue, the color that never was. Long ago, we saw the sea as purple, in other parts, a bright green. Ask anyone in Asia, blue is new. The sky is a void and the sea can be orange. 
In the museum of future memories, a certain kind of blue language blooms once a year. It's like those flowers who wait for the night to fall, to grow without a glimpse. I see the monstrous deep. Monsters, sky and sea. Do they make the waves, construct the cycles? Will the wind win? The wind smashes against rocks, dries tendrils and cheeks, suspends time, smash, smash as we walk between stones. Suspended language is in a state of elongation, expanding life. If you dry the cod, it can last years, 10 or more. If the world is at the edge of sea and sky, then suspension is vital for survival or play. Play is a form of being. A being is a kind of species. We are species suspended in time and space, trying to remember to see language. Here, we cut tongues. Does this mean remove the language of the fish? What about our own? Maybe our bodies have more to say than our tongues. Invasive species, you remind me I'm not from here. The future is the experience of migration or movement. This is a kind of exchange. In the past, we traded reindeer for penguins. Our friendship is nations linked by cartoon animals. If a penguin is a bird, how can it invade our yard? It was done away with. The reindeer still roam. Orca, herring, and fin whale gather in winter. Fish are in constant motion. I watch them on the shark cam online free anytime. The fish move fast and fluid in yellow blurs. Does the bright light of the camera agitate them like a sun making us restless? The water is murky. Do I believe it? The camera? And I'll stop there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Monica, did you want to read another poem? Yes, please. <laughs> sure. I, thinking of the future, I think I'll, yeah, th th there's a poem that is relatively recent that is not in repetition 19 in other words um, that um, is part of a sequence I've been trying to work on dealing with uh, these past months um, and the, the, se the sequence maybe is, is t uh, provisionally called pause a document and I have one poem per month and so this would be the poem for December and I'll just read it December. Who can say where we're going? To be sure, I'd split my attention, so now looking back, I couldn't tell. If I had succumbed to the logic of the gimmick when breaking, things to make the stone stonier, when even the scare. Not a cliche. Quotes demanded to be in quotes. When the numbness setting in was as frightening a prospect. There was something to be said about technique, like the technology of looking away from one screen to have the eyes land in a scene from a music video on mute on another screen. 
false no-show priority style parent margin pagination widow orphan font family theme minor latin scene code visible all of a sudden scrambling everything like malware or virus in that frame, an extravaganza of go-go boots, a dollyish queen, and a cowboy leaning on a horse pen, pen's fence, all glam, saturation, and radiance. What I'd wanted here was to place a comma, take a breather, retrace my steps, but we jumped into the new year sitting down, broadcasting ourselves, wrapped, not wondering how. We ended up here in other corners of the web where delusion kept its recruital of denialist, denying, denial strategy or tactic, the question unanswerable even in hindsight. A line for each day of the month reminding me of Kathleen Ladique's saying only in performance did she figure out what her scores meant. Later, we'd know that the actions to so-called settle the score were no improvisation, so I ascribed them to a time prior to their having happened. Would they, like the truthism that was once an oft-told lie, repeat again? Mm. It's so intricate and full of ambiguity. I love it. Thank you. January was all there in December. We just didn't see it. Well, thank you, Yumna, and thank you, Monica, and the conversations to be continued in various forms. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Thank Um, you so much. Yeah, it's been so lovely. My brain is firing in all directions. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'll be like, oh, these, the, 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 the best mark of a good conversation. It's like mm-hmm. everything that happens after you press end. And then yeah. you're like, hmm. Thanks. So thank you. Thank you for your great questions. Yeah, thank you both so much. Thanks, Monica. Mm-hmm.